Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 616 of the podcast and it is Friday the 8th of April 2022 as I record this. On today's show, I'm talking to Daniel Miller, who is a children's book author and illustrator. And although we start with craft, it turns into more of a discussion about business models. Because Daniel has been doing these big print runs and keeps inventory and focuses on direct sales and school visits, he didn't even know he could do hardback print on demand. And he didn't realise he could expand his business internationally by using IngramSpark, for example, to reach places all over the world. So our talk was really interesting because we essentially turned into a discussion of business models and how we can expand them. Plus, he also talks about virtual school visits and physical school visits and selling his visits through Square, his online Square shop. We also talk about scalable business, professional speaking, making sure there are income streams that are not dependent on your physical presence, as well as the necessary evils, as Daniel called it, of the business side of things and how he still finds it is worth being independent because he values creative control above all else. And that is often what I find uh, that people love being indie, I certainly do, because creative control is the most important thing. So even if you don't write children's books, I think you'll still find our discussion interesting. I certainly did. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing news, well, I've been at London Book Fair this week and I'm still recovering from the overwhelming amount of stimulation for my introvert brain. An introvert brain after two years of pandemic, that's what you've got to remember. So uh, London Olympia, which is where it is, I mean, it's a big trade fair. Think big trade hair fair, <laughs> massive stalls uh, with several thousand people. There were definitely several thousand people there. And it's a huge event centre, hundreds of booths from publishers around the world, seminars, meetings, networking, parties, more. And what's so funny is you you know how we're trained to look at book covers because we're book people and we just can't help ourselves. So you're wandering around these halls and there are so many book covers and you're like, ooh, 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 and you just can't stop looking at things. And I, I think that's part of the exhaustion. It's not just loads of faces and, and noise, it's also book covers. And so your eye, even your eyeballs get tired <laughs> at these things. And I always have this double-edged feeling. On the one hand, I never want to do it again. And there are always times when I do anything in public <laughs> that I think, I'm just not going to do this again. Don't. Why do I put myself through it? I am pretty broken, exhausted and wrung out. But on the other hand, it was brilliant. I walked in and I just had this big smile on my face as I walked in that first morning. I love the book fair. I actually do. It's so stimulating. I actually love seeing all those book covers everywhere. I like being part of a massive global industry. I like learning things, meeting old friends and meeting new people. I did some really good business deals and generally pushed my comfort zone again. And I like that too. That's what I have to remember. 
so the choice, if you think, well, oh, but I don't want to do that. Oh, but I do want to do it. It's it's difficult. But the choice is to never, ever, ever do these big public events again, or to push my comfort zone and to get used to it and get better at it and realise that I can do it once more. And I've always found these things difficult, but overwhelmingly, it is always worth it. I have travelled to conferences around the world and they have always been worth it. Um, I just need some perspective after the exhaustion recedes. And now I have some perspective and it was definitely worth it. So (laughs) yes, I will be back next year. So I'm going to do a show in more detail with Orna Ross on the Advanced Ally podcast in a few weeks. So I won't go into too much detail. But a couple of things were, first of all, a highlight was speaking with Orna Ross uh, on the 10th anniversary of the founding of the Alliance of Independent Authors, which Orna started at London Book Fair in 2012. And so Orna and I and Michael Anderley did a session on the creator economy. And it was really good because we all represent different parts of the creator economy and different business models. And I really sensed, I've really been sensing recently that things are shifting big time. We're shifting to a different model where authors are more empowered, looking for new options. So in the past, you know, we used to just give the bulk of our money to other people. (laughs) And even if you think, oh, well, I'm an indie, I don't give the bulk of my money to other people. Well, have you checked your ad spend and all the platforms we have to do and all the all the money that comes out is getting bigger and bigger, basically. So um, fees and costs and all of this stuff goes up. Now, fees are always going to be part of it, but I, I feel like there's a lot going on around how we can take back even more power and be even more independent. The creator economy is a movement, basically. So yeah, I'm going to be talking more about this over time. This was also underscored by the petition that's going around right now about protesting Amazon's return policy for ebooks. And this isn't so much of a book fair thing, but it's been in the media here in the UK and the petition's got tens of thousands of signups and some big name authors have joined in. But it's essentially, it's, it's not a new thing. It's just kind of been discovered uh, that books can be, ebooks can be returned after they have been read. So 100% read, you can still return them. And this was shared on TikTok, which meant that it became a sort of viral trend and authors have seen a big rise in um, returns. Now, to me, this goes in the same bucket as the Hash Audible Gate campaign. One of the things that the Audible Gate campaign is about is returns <laughs> on fully listened to audio content, which is also another policy. Now, I just think Amazon are aiming at unlimited digital content for a very low price. And I've said this for years, digital Digital abundance means that digital goes to zero. So that's why I'm so interested in digital scarcity. Hate to mention NFTs, people, but digital scarcity is the only way we can reclaim higher prices on digital because ebooks and audiobooks are pretty much going to zero because of the way the um, the borrowing economy is and these return policies. So yeah, essentially what's interesting is people are noticing, our big name authors are noticing, but it's nothing new. And um, I certainly, I can't imagine that protests are going to change anything because it's in the terms of service. And that is what we sign when we upload books. 
So I've been selling direct for over a decade, but as ever, I want to do more of it with upcoming books. Now, there are some tools and services at the fair that might also be useful. So I'm spending a lot of time at the moment really thinking about my business model and how I want to run things going forward to do even more direct. And obviously, I've mentioned the Kickstarter idea, but I've got some other plans. Uh, So yeah, looking at being even more independent, we shall see. I also spoke on a panel at a writer's summit where I was the lone indie author surrounded by three traditional publishing authors and editors. Now, it was meant to be a session on the pros and cons of different publishing routes, but I changed the focus and really just spoke to the audience about the energy and empowerment of being an independent creator, the creator economy, and similar to what um, Daniel says, the creative freedom Um, the creative control. And I think, (laughs) I just don't think we need to discuss uh, the pros and cons of indie versus trad anymore. I I almost think it's a feeling. You know whether you're interested in being an indie. If you are interested in the energy of the movement, if you're if you love the empowered creator spirit, uh, rather than the, I need to go and ask someone else for permission, I need to be rejected before someone finally lets my book out there. Uh, I I just feel like there's a completely different energy involved. So, and there's absolutely reasons why you would go either route. But it was funny because I and I said to people, it's not either or anymore. It doesn't have to be either one or the other. You can publish some things yourself, you can license your rights in other ways. But when it comes down to it, it is about empowerment. And if you're not feeling very empowered, well, that's okay, because we can grow into that by learning more. And you become more empowered by learning um, about the value of your intellectual property, learning how to do things. So yeah, don't you worry. If you're not feeling empowered enough, you will get there. So it was fun. And if you want to speak more and need tips for public speaking, remember I have a book on it, Public Speaking for Authors, Creatives and Other Introverts, which includes the craft, business and mindset around professional speaking. Because I've been speaking professionally, as in when I say speaking professionally, I mean paid professional speaking for over a decade now. So yeah. I also had a load of meetings at the book fair, two on AI for voice narration, which I've talked about before, episode 589 with Taylan Carmes from Deep Zen and 544 with Ryan Dingler from Google Play Books. And those are the two companies I had meetings with. And both of them offer even more AI voice narration options and both have expanded their options for creation and distribution. So I am going to be taking both of those things further and I'll let you know I'll do another solo episode or something once it's all sorted. I also met up with John and Jens from Creatokia Bookwire and they also have some changes coming too. So basically the fair was well worth it for the temporary pain and stress of introvert overload. So my question for you this week is where might you need to push your comfort zone in order to benefit your author career or renew relationships or just experience the serendipity of being at an event like the book fair? I know it's scary out there, but perhaps it might be worth it. 
So I also want to give a uh, goodbye, a sad goodbye actually, to the Six Figure Author podcast, which is winding down in the next week or so. Thanks to Lindsay, Andrea and Joe for sharing a ton of awesome information in the last few years. It's been one of the uh, podcasts I listen to because I just I just think they've covered some just fascinating topics and have been very good at specific topics within their shows. So they have all, there's nothing um, terrible going on. They've just all decided to spend their time on other things, writing more, traveling more and family things. And it's also a timely reminder to consider what we spend our time on, what we need to close down, shut down or stop doing, what is important, what is really not important, what do you want your life to look like? And you know I have questioned this show a number of times over, well, many, many years now, since 2009, I have considered stopping the podcast, but each time I've come back to it renewed. So I'm not saying this will go on forever, but uh, while it's still worth it, it's worth it for creative and business and all the reasons that I carry on. While I'm still helpful, I'm going to continue to do this podcast. So yeah, I'm not going anywhere, but I really appreciate those authors. I mean, there's a lot of author podcasts that have shut down over the years and the reasons are that things have moved on or different hosts have changed and uh, that's just the way things are. The same has happened in the author space. What's so fascinating to me is how we get obsessed with this author name or that author name. And if you're around long enough, you see that a lot of these people disappear. And the people who have a long term career just put in sustainable business models that keep them going for for a long time. And that's why I continue to listen to those authors who are still making a living after a really, really long time. (laughs) So I always mention Dean Wesley Smith, Christine Catherine Rush, Kevin J. Anderson, for example, um, all full-time authors for, for many decades. So yes, I should also mention the backlist episodes of Six Figure Author Podcast are really good too. So even though they're not going to be producing new shows, definitely go check them out. So in personal stuff, I returned from the book fair to find Ark of Blood back from my editor. That's my third arcane thriller. And so I did the updates this morning, which was really cool and just got that back for um, just sent it off for proofreading. And then I expect to get that 2022 edition out this week as, as this goes out. New print copies done and the whole thing. So very, very happy with this project of rewriting the first few novels. And so many people, even at the book fair, people were stopping me and saying, oh my goodness, you're rewriting your novel episode, your solo show was so useful. So um, thank you. And I'm glad you found that useful. It's kind of an epic post. But it is also, I'm going to use that information in how to write a novel, which is my next book. I am working on the draft. Yes, I actually opened the Scrivener document, which I've had for, I think, four years. <laughs> 90,000 word draft that I just haven't been able to tackle for four years. It is now uh, being tackled, (laughs) let's say. And uh, I also have been working on my multi-page Kickstarter plan and budget spreadsheet, which just sounds just really sexy, obviously. Uh, I have a lot of questions to answer before I commit to a Kickstarter. Because I spent 13 years as a business consultant, I have to draw flow diagrams and figure out all the things I have to do before I commit to something. So you know, once I do commit to something, I know how it's going to work. (laughs) So yes, that's my writing stuff at the moment. I'm going to be focusing on how to write a novel. So also, would you like to win 14 
thriller mystery and crime novels in print yes 14 print copies of thrillers but mystery and crime novels i am part of an easter giveaway well my jf pen persona is part of an easter giveaway where you can win 14 novels seven from the authors involved and seven more that we've picked as books we love so we've all donated one of our own books and one from authors we love it's open internationally you can enter Uh, from now until Monday the 18th of April. You can sign up for the giveaway only, but you can also opt in to author email lists and uh, hopefully you will discover some new authors that you love. Head on over to thecreativepen.com forward slash Easter 22. Easter 22 links in the show notes. And yes, you could be in to win 14 thriller, mystery and crime print novels, which you can always read, give away, uh, gift, whatever you like. So thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments. Episodes on editing are always popular. <laughs> so I'm glad you all enjoyed uh, Tiffany's interview. So Terry Connellan said, loved this episode, especially the tips for getting distance on our drafts as we work on them. Louise Rule said, such an interesting interview. When I was at university, we were told by our creative writing lecturer that the first draft was us telling the story to ourselves, which actually works for me most of the time. And finally, CJ Edmonds said, thank you for this episode. Just finished the first draft of my second book of a series, gearing up for some editing. The information in this episode is priceless. And of course, I always love to hear from you. Tweet me at the creative pen with a double N. Send me pictures of where you're listening. Email me joanna at thecreativepen.com or leave a comment on the blog or the YouTube channel. I love to hear from you. It makes this more of a conversation. So today's show is sponsored by Ingram Spark, which is totally appropriate given the conversation ahead with Daniel. So I use Ingram Spark to print and distribute my self-published print books wide because with Ingram Spark, it's my content, but they help me do more with it. And in fact, that's what we talk about in the interview. Are you leaving money on the table by not doing print on demand or by not doing it wide? If you don't have options for readers all over the world, then you might be missing out. So why even consider Ingram Spark? Well, if you only use KDP Print, bookstores, libraries, universities and many online print-on-demand sites in different countries will not consider your book because you need to often offer a discount and you need to be listed in their catalogue. Plus, a lot of these places would never consider ordering from Amazon for obvious reasons. So if you care about getting your books into these places, bookstores, libraries, etc., you need to go wide with your print books. And remember, this is not about exclusivity uh, for ebooks. Even if you are exclusive with ebooks, you can still do print with Ingram Spark. You will have access to over 40,000 retailers, independent bookstores, libraries, schools and universities, chain bookstores and more across a global network, which is really important to remember, including bookstores like Foils, Blackwells and Waterstones in the UK, Bookshop.org, which has become very popular in the pandemic, Booktopia in Australia and New Zealand, Chapters Indigo in Canada, Walmart, Target and loads of other independent stores across the world. Of course, it means your book will be available to order, but you will still have to drive demand. But personally, since having my books on Ingram Spark, and I don't do anything particular other than usual marketing, I've had many of you send pictures of my print books in libraries. I've had them sold at book fairs, conventions, and in physical stores. I've just stumbled upon them in stores because they can order them in their catalogue. 
So you can choose to use returns, but it's not necessary. I don't use returns. And you can choose your discount percentage. You can also bulk order. So if you are doing events at schools, um, I do know lots of authors who will order a whole box of books. Or if you're doing speaking events, you order them on the Ingram website and get them shipped to wherever and they can be printed in different parts of the world. So uh, I did an event in New Zealand and ordered from the Australian Ingram plant. I've also had several bookstores in the USA order direct from me and then I just get them printed from Ingram and sent direct in boxes. So it all works very well. I also mentioned in the interview that I recently went back into my Ingram Spark catalogue and raised my prices on some of the books, especially the older books that I haven't really touched for five years, because paper prices, distribution and supply chain prices and inflation have made it that our profit is eroded in so many ways. So yes, if you've been using any print service for years, go back and check you're still making the profit you want to on print books. So what are you waiting for? It's your content. Do more with it. Head on over to ingramspark.com. This type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons. And if you support the show, you'll get the extra Q&A audio, which I'll be recording in the next week or two. You can ask your questions on anything that I cover on the show or anything you like. I rarely say no to a to an interesting question. (laughs) Or it can just be a basic question. I don't mind answering those too. Thanks to new patrons, Andre should be writing, Glyn Thompson, Julie Serven and Alex Turnbull. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting the show for months and years. You're brilliant. And if you'd like to support the show with some currency, they take loads of currencies now, just check it out at patreon.com, p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview. Daniel Jude Miller is the author and illustrator of seven children's books. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. Oh, no, I'm excited to talk to you today. So first up, tell us a little bit more about you and how you got into writing books for children. Well, that's an interesting story because I did not want to write books for children. In fact, I didn't want to write books for anyone. I actually started out as an illustrator. I was the kid that was drawing in school. I was the one who went to a special art high school. I went to art college and I only wanted to be an illustrator. I had no plans on writing. I never actually even tried growing up when I, when I was in school, it wasn't really a thing that they focused on. So I never even attempted it. And when I was about 25, I got an idea for a story and I had a problem because I had two choices. Either I was going to let somebody else write it and just do the illustrations for my own idea, or I'd have to actually learn how to write. So I only decided to write and only started writing when I was 25 years old, and I had already spent almost 20 years being an artist. Wait, sorry, that doesn't make sense. You were 25 when you decided to... To start writing. Yeah, that that was literally the first time I ever sat down to write, but I had been drawing since I was literally like five years old. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) I thought you meant like you had a 20 year career in illustration. No, well, yeah, no, I, but like, I mean, literally, like I was the the person who was like obsessed with art and and that was my only goal. Kids ask me all the time, if I wasn't an artist, um, what would I be? And I have no idea because I don't know how to fix a car. I don't know how to swing a hammer. I can't cook to save my life. So I had one goal and one goal only, and that was to be an artist. And, And it worked. The writing part was not part of the plan. That came accidentally 
And surprisingly, it's actually now the part I slightly enjoy more. So that's interesting. So you had this first idea for a story and clearly you decided to learn to write. But how did you go about that? How did you go about developing a a new craft? Did you do degree courses or did you just write or how did you do it? Well, no, I wish I would have taken some courses. That probably would have been a better idea. I decided to just do it. And it took almost 15 years to finish the first actual book because I also decided maybe foolishly, but it was more like a challenge to write my first book in rhyme. And it was a very long book. It wasn't like cat and hat type rhymes. It was going to be very complicated. And that's probably not the best thing to train yourself on, but ultimately it worked. It just took a really, really long time. So from the that moment when I had the idea for my first book to when that book was actually physically in my hands was 15 years. And that was a lot of reading other books. That was a lot of just going over it. And I mean, there must have been easily 100 drafts because normally there's a lot of drafts, but for when you're learning how to write, there's even more. And so it was just a long, long process. And so what were you doing as a job while you were doing all that? Well, I wasn't, I was an illustrator. So I I had a, a job, I had a day job that I really didn't like because it was a job at an advertising agency. And that was not the type of art that I wanted to do because it was a whole lot of insurance and medicine. And I was doing, I was drawing, but, but not drawing anything that I had any interest in at all. And so it kind of worked out perfect because when I got the idea uh, to do a story, even though it took 15 years to do it, the first one, they don't take that long now. Now it's about a year to do both parts, the, the writing and the drawings. But it worked out perfect because I didn't want that job anymore anyway. My, my illustration career had become really, really stagnant. And I, I wasn't even really honestly enjoying drawing at all anymore. So it kind of worked perfect right when I started was writing. That kind of invigorated my art career. And it turns out this wasn't, wasn't the plan uh, originally. I, I planned on being a magazine illustrator, but it turned out that I really liked doing books. That even Forget about the writing part. I never planned on doing that. I never planned on being a book illustrator. The plan was to be a magazine you know, editorial illustrator. And it took me 15 years to find out that that job was really boring. But eventually I did. And it, it took learning a new craft to actually save my art career at the same time. Oh, I love that because I feel like so often, like I know a lot of freelance writers who will say, oh, I spend a lot of time, I spend all my day writing, but it's writing stuff that I don't particularly want to write. And so many authors listening will have come or are still in jobs like that. But I'm glad you refound your love of art. I mean, that's just fantastic. So you're now a full-time children's author and illustrator, basically. Yeah, it's, it's, I would say, I, I like to put it like this. It's more like being a part-time writer, part-time illustrator, part-time publisher, part-time website designer, part-time. And when you put those all together, it's one full-time job that takes up the entire day. <laughs> but that is the truth of being an independent creative. I think people, you know, people say, when I say I'm a full-time writer, what I mean is the same as you. <laughs> Plus I do podcasting, which could be marketing, could be income, you know, is those things. And so the job of a writer slash illustrator is never just that, is it? There's always, there's all the running your own business stuff. There is, there are so many parts. It's funny because actually, if I really had to add up the actual hours, probably the creative part is only about 40%, the writing and illustrating of the actual day, like 60% 
is the running the business. And unfortunately, that's not the part I enjoy almost at all, but it's necessary because of the path that I chose. But I wish I could dedicate more time to the creative side. But unfortunately, um, (laughs) that's not really how it works when you're on your own. Right. Well, I'm going to return to that with your publishing choices, but let's just come back to the craft side. So that first book, you said that you had a complicated rhyme structure, which meant it took a very long time. So what are your tips now for people who might be writing books for children? Like, What are your tips for writing books they love, but also that don't take 15 years? (laughs) <laughs> well, right. You don't want to take 15 years. You at least get it a little bit less than that. The main thing that for me is, is I don't think about the kids when I'm writing at all. I don't think what will they like that? I think that's a trap that like children's authors fall into is that they look around and they say, what do kids like? And then they try to write to their interests as opposed to just writing something that you find interesting, something that, you know, if you're excited about something, just write that. And I found that I don't really think like, will kids like this? Because first of all, a lot of times you're wrong. Like one of one of my books I had written, I didn't think this, this book, Halloween Boy and the Christmas Kid, it's based on my son. I wrote it for me. I actually didn't think it would sell very well, but I just needed to make it because it was about him and I created it and it turned out that it's actually the best selling book I have. So the thing is, I don't think too much like what are kids interested in right now or what what do I think they want to see? Because I think that really limits you in what you can write about, but also a lot of times you're wrong. So you're better off just writing a good book, right? If you, no matter who you're writing for, kids or adults, Write the book you want to read, write the the thing that that you think is funny, write something that you find interesting, and the audience will find your book. I just think it's dangerous when you start trying to cater your work to the audience. That's just a big mistake. And then obviously most children's authors are not illustrators Mm. as well. So as an illustrator yourself, if an author wants to work with an illustrator, what's the best way that they can communicate their vision with an illustrator? Because obviously what you do is you write some words and you draw some stuff and then presumably there's an iterative process. But when an author is sort of commissioning an illustrator, it's a bit different, isn't it? So what are your recommendations there? The hardest part, I've only done... Uh, two books for someone else. But the hardest part always was with working with an author. And I know this as an author myself now, is that always the writing gets completed first. And so what happens is the author tends to sort of fall, obviously fall in love with their own work. When you hire an illustrator, you have to remember that it's a partnership. And the problems that I've had in the past is that authors will, will approach me and they'll, they're so in love with what they've done that they don't necessarily want to let the illustrator do their job and let them be creative and take your words and embellish on them and make it better and bring this all together. They have a tendency sometimes to have a very heavy hand and sort of direct the the illustrator and say, this is what I want. This is how you should do it. When in reality, a lot of times they're not right because they're not illustrators. So they don't understand how that process works. So I think the key is if if you write, but you're going to let someone else illustrate it, remember, it's sort of like a marriage. This book is not going to anymore be your book. It's going to be the two of your book. And and if you can remember that, that it's a a back and forth process, that these are your words and their drawings, and you go back and forth. And when the product comes out, it's 
a joint product. I think when authors go in and they say, this is my book, that's where it becomes a problem because they're not allowing the illustrator the freedom and the creativity because they're basically art directing, which is not really what you want to do. So how does your process work then? Do you have a picture of an image in your mind first or words in your mind? And, and is it an iterative creative process? Uh, I ha- So always the writing comes first. And, and I explain that the reason I do that is because way easier to change words than it is to change drawings. So if you start writing your story and the character, for, uh, for example, has a mustache and you write that, that they have a mustache, but then you start doing the drawings. And then later in the story, you go, you know what? I don't want him to have a mustache. That's really easy to fix in the writing process. That's much harder to fix in the drawing. So it's important that all of the words are done before you start almost doing any of the finished art because it's just too hard to change. So usually I'll write everything first, but I have a weird process because a lot of times I'll start writing and then you get writer's block and then I'll go and start writing something else. And then I'll come back to the first one and then I'll do a third one. So generally at any given time, I'm usually working on three writing projects at the same time and two illustration projects because those drawings are for books that are already finished, but are waiting for the drawings. So it's sort of like juggling for me. There's a lot going on because you get stuck, whether you're drawing or writing. And for me, I'm lucky because I have more than one job. When you get stuck, you just go and you do something else. So gradually I have some stuff that's 90% done, some stuff that's 75% done, some stuff that's 10% done. Gradually they'll all be finished, but they're all sort of being worked on at the same time. It's so fascinating. And I feel like it's an amazing art that you have and a you know wonderful sort of it works very well as a children's author particular to do both of those things at the same time but let's get into the business side because you mentioned a few minutes ago that you don't like running the business (laughs) but it is a necessary evil for the publishing path you chose so you've chosen an independent route so why did you choose that route if you're not into the business side that's a good question. I've been asking myself that uh, a lot. The thing is, is what it, I actually never actually did the formal attempt at getting a publisher. I, I try. I sent my first book out, I believe, only to one place. It got rejected, and I just decided that it wasn't for me. I, I don't love the business side, the paperwork, and all the accounting and all that. But it's a necessary evil to have the control, and that's kind. Of, I, I think once I realized I was going to be doing the art, the writing, but also the graphic design and also making, I wanted to make most of the decisions. And there's, it's funny because there's simple ones like dust jackets, like all my picture books have dust jackets. I I've never done a soft cover book before and all the hard covers have dust jackets. I would probably run into some issues with a publisher that some of them would say, let's do it this way or that way. And I I just didn't, I wanted full control to make all creative decisions. So in order to have that control, unfortunately, I was going to have to do the paperwork and the accounting because I was going to have to run the business. So it was basically just for that reason is I, I didn't, I always felt that there were going to be so many changes when, and to all the aspects, to the writing, to the illustration, because I had worked in illustration for a long time. And even though you think you have a good drawing, a lot of times the client thinks otherwise, and they make bad decisions sometimes. And they'll tell you to change things that you know are not in the benefit of the art, but that's your job. And I didn't want my books to become like that, where there was someone else kind of directing it and telling me, let's change this character. Let's do this. 
I wanted just full and total control. And unfortunately, that control comes along with a lot more responsibility. I love that you say that because this is the number one reason that people choose the independent route, which is creative freedom, creative control. Like it literally isn't, no one ever says, oh, it's because I want to make more money or something like that. It's always, I want creative control. And I feel that I can see that that's even more important when you're an illustrator as well, because the vision in your head is both words and pictures. And so, of course, if you're working with someone else, they're going to change it. But if you're doing it all yourself, then you can do that. But it is, as you say, it's both the blessing and the curse of an independent, right? Right. And that doesn't mean that, I mean, I'm open to critique. And obviously, every book I've done, I it goes through a, a large process with my own family, but then it goes to, I have a group of students that will look through it and they are, they, their input is valuable. So there are times that I have made changes based on things they've said. I think ultimately, though, I want to make the final decision because there's some times where people have suggested things I don't agree with. I get to decide that we're not going to do that. If there was a publisher involved, they may say, no, that's what we're doing. Surprisingly, though, is something you said about no one ever decides I'm going to do this to make more money. Technically, I think there is more money in doing it the way it's, there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of investment. But I think ultimately, I actually probably make more money doing it this way than I think I would have if I would have done it the other way. Although there was like a big lead up and it took time to get to that point, I think ultimately it'll actually be more profitable too. Yes. Well, we always talk about this being a long-term business. I was actually I was talking with a friend earlier and I was like, look, this doesn't necessarily look viable with one book. But it looks viable over five years, over a decade, over the next 20 years, because you have that control of your intellectual property and you can do what you like with it. And so you can't assess the business prospect or the business comparison if you only just do the next two years, basically. Uh, You almost have to think much longer term. And and your business, I've been on your website, we'll talk about in a minute, but you've got so much intellectual property now and these just wonderful, wonderful characters that you own. So it seems like the future, you'll make even more money in the future because of the possibilities. Well, it's that's very important what you just said about if I had any advice for other children's authors, and a lot of people ask me this, it's tough with one book. It is, it is. It's just really, really hard to turn that into a business. If, if you have one idea for a story, then it's probably best you go the traditional publishing route. I was lucky because even when I had that boring job and I, that I didn't like, I guess behind the scenes, I was working on a lot of different personal projects. So the first book that got published for me, I already had 10 more that were sort of in the process. So I had a viable business it didn't work until probably around the third book. Once I had three, then it became profitable. So if there's someone out there and you have one idea and that's that's great, it, don't try to turn that into a business because that's going to be really hard to leverage with just one thing. Then you're better off just letting someone else do all the paperwork and the accounting and go that route. If you believe that you have seven or eight or, or you know, a million books in you, then yes, then I suggest doing it this way because like you're saying, you control all your own intellectual property and there's probably a lot of it. Although I would say that I think most people start off thinking that they only have one book and then it's like you get the bug or you don't get the bug. 
And if you get the bug, it goes on and on and on like you and I. (laughs) I mean, uh, I am a lot of books now and there's always more ideas for more. But I didn't know I had all those ideas at the beginning. So I just, yeah, add add that. But let's um, talk about the actual publishing side of things. You mentioned there that you basically only do hardcovers, it sounds, with Mm. dust jackets. So how do you publish your books? Tell us about who you use for printing and why you make those choices. So I've used multiple printers. So when I decided that this is what I'm doing, I'm going to do it myself. The idea, I I know print on demand is out there. That's for some people that might work. It it wasn't going to work for me because I made the decision right away that I wanted to do hardcover and you really can't do print on demand hardcover. So I decided that I wanted my books to be indistinguishable from any other book you would pick up in Barnes and Noble, like that the quality had to be on every level, not just the writing and the art, but on the graphic design and on the physical product. So that meant they needed dust jackets, they needed to be hardcover. Sometimes there's um, laminates and foils and all sorts of things that any other real legitimate publisher would do. At that point, it was the process of finding uh, a printer. There were times in the beginning that the, the printers were in China. There are other times that I was using American printers. Now it's really confusing because everything is kind of crazy. So right this minute, I'm actually looking for a new one because getting things is not the easiest thing to do um, nowadays. But I've always tried to get the best quality possible. Now, that comes at a cost. And that's the big difference between um, going the print-on-demand route and going the the route that I took. There was a very, very sizable, legitimate business investment that needed to be made by my credit cards in the beginning of this process. And like you were saying about how you think you have one idea and then you get two ideas and three, well, you think something's going to cost a certain amount and it always costs more and more and more. And so I found out really quickly within two years of starting a business that this business had sizable debt but it also had sizable inventory, right? Which is all stored. I mean, I have probably in, uh, luckily I have a big enough basement to store all this stuff near me, but I have almost 10,000 literal um, units in the basement, sorted and ready to go. But that took a lot of money to get it off the ground. And then, so I needed a way to sell that (laughs) because if you have a lot of inventory, but no sales, uh, that's a big problem. Yeah. And just to say, though, you can do hardcover print on demand with dust jackets through Ingram Spark. Obviously, the quality is not going to match your print run. But right. why why not also have those available? You know what? Honestly, I, like I, I actually didn't even know, like, honestly, that it existed. I just kind of like picked my path. And I've sort of shot through this path. And I, I know also, though, the problem with the print on demand, like I had spoken about before, that this route is sort of more profitable at times. I know when you're when print on demand books are printed, obviously, they're sort of expensive, right, to get them produced. So the profit per unit is smaller. For me, the profit per book depending on where I'm selling, it can actually be 12 or even sometimes $13 per book, right? So yeah, there's a sizable investment to get 5,000 units in my house, but in the long run, the individual sales are much more profitable um, as they're selling. You just got to hope you have a way to sell them. 
Yeah, although I'm still going to challenge you on this and say, why not just have a print-on-demand version up on Amazon or on IngramSpark, which goes out to bookstores all around the world that you might not be reaching in other ways? And then, I mean, just put a $2 or a $3 profit on it because it's you don't have to pay anything. To me, print-on-demand is this magic solution where I don't have to pay anything and I get money every month, which is awesome. I mean, I totally love your model and we're going to talk more about it, but I don't see that they have to be separate. I see that you can do both and therefore not leave money on the table because we like more money, right? So just just a thought. Well, you, you, you make a good point, right? I don't sell internationally at all, zero at this point. So you're right. For something like that, you're right. It, it, that is something I definitely should focus on because I don't have a way. Actually, international shipping for books is really complicated. Mm-hmm. I just had an order in Canada. It became a giant problem. And it's Canada and I'm in America. This shouldn't be that hard, but it became a giant issue. So you're right. And there, there are benefits to it. I never even thought of that. So I will look into that now. So thank you, because that is an area that like I said, that's the business part, the part I don't love doing. Um, so so thank you. You've helped me. <laughs> oh, no worries. Well, then I'll help you some more. And people listening, uh, Ingram Spark does have a setup cost per book, but you can get a code that will make it free if either you're a member or you join the Alliance of Independent Authors or on in the 20 Books to 50K Facebook group, they also have codes. Other places have codes, but certainly with the number of books you have, it's worth joining an organization like the Alliance of Independent Authors. And as part of that, you'll get the um, code for Ingram. And yeah, I mean, it, because you can do your own designs, it just makes sense. And I've, I've sold books in 169 countries. So I would say that definitely that it's a good idea. So people listening, and I, this is such a good realization, and I'm always looking for this too, which is what am I not doing that is a kind of, in fact, as we, <laughs> just before we got on the phone, I've been going through my entire print back catalog of print on demand and putting up my prices uh, just by a dollar or $2 or whatever, because because of inflation, because of the price of paper, because I want a better margin. And I'm like, right, I'm just going to put everything up. And it's because someone said something somewhere that, and I was like, right, I really need to look at this. And so the big question is, I guess, what are we leaving on the table? And I'm certainly always interested in that too. Yeah, excellent. Because like you said, you have 169 countries you've sold in. I've sold in one and a half, America and and barely into Canada. So yes, I appreciate that. I've written that down and I will look into that. So thank you. (laughs) No worries. Right. So that's the publishing side. Let's talk about your direct sales, because I think this is fascinating too. And you've chosen this particular route. Like you said, you've got uh, 10,000 units in your basement. Tell us about how you sell those. (laughs) basically. (laughs) Okay. So I went into this business just loving the creative side of it. And like I said, I didn't really think very much at all about the business part because I was so excited to make books. And so I was one of those people that figured I got a plan. And the plan was basically one line that I would make a book, I would put it up on Amazon, and then you get rich. Step two is get rich. That doesn't work like that at all. So what had happened was I had already invested an enormous amount of money and I had literally no plan on, on how I was going to do this. And so I went to a book uh, show and a small book show, and there was an author there that was self-published doing it the way that I was planning on doing it. And he had sold 150,000 copies on his own. 
and he's a great guy. I went there and I met him and he said to me, I love your books. You're going to be real successful. Are you going to do author visits? I had no idea what he was talking about. And he said, no, that's what you have to do. When you sell children's books, you have to go out and meet the kids and talk to the kids and schools have kids. So he said, come with me. I have an author visit next week. I'll show you how it's done. And so I went and he had this whole presentation, a room full of second graders, 200 kids. And I'm sitting there going, there's no way like I can do this. This was not the plan. The plan was to make books. It wasn't to give presentations. And right at that moment, when I'm thinking, I can't do this, he says, I have a friend with me. And I'm thinking, please be talking about someone else. But he he was not. And he brought me up on stage. And I'll never forget it. My hand was shaking when he handed me the microphone. Literally a room full of second graders. But I'm the most scared person in the room. I answered like two questions. And then I got in the car and I drove home and I said to my wife, there's no way that I can do this route. There's no way. We got to find a better plan. And she said, well, you better do this because we have 10,000 books. In (laughs) In our basement. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I literally on that drive home, it was about a two hour drive home. And I was like, I guess this is what I'm doing. And I, I lucked out because it was the end of the school year. So I had the summer to sort of figure out what I was going to do. And it turns out when September came and I, I did my first author visit, I wasn't nervous for a second. It just, and it's never bothered me because it just seemed like the right fit for me, because it allows me to talk about the writing process. It allows me to talk about my journey. It allows me to talk about illustration. And that's how I sell easily 90% of all the copies go directly to the kids, which I actually kind of like because they get to meet me, talk to me and get excited about what I'm doing. And that makes them want to buy it. And that makes me want to sell it to them. Right. So let's talk about these author visits then. So how Did you change from being terrified to being fine about it? What was your process there? Did you do some speaking training or what did you do? No, like literally nothing. I actually, I actually, the first one I was supposed to do was a really small school. And I thought, great. I basically practiced in the basement. I actually thought I was going to write a script. I thought I was going to memorize it more like an actor. And then the first one I was supposed to do was going to be really, really small. I figured, perfect. But then it snowed and it got canceled. It got it got moved up. So my actual first one, my first ever presentation was to a room of about 300, 300 people. And I don't know what it was. It just clicked as soon as they handed me the microphone. And it was my story that I was going to get to tell. I just fell in love with it like instantly. And I mean, on any given week, I both virtually and in person, I have to do probably around 20 separate presentations, 45 minutes each time. It's never made me nervous. I, I know that's not normal. I know most people, you're right, they, especially authors, I hear all the time that they, they're not a fan of like getting in front of a room full of people. But for me, I guess there was a showman side of it that I kind of liked, and it just never bothered me. Interesting. Okay. So you said they're 20 a week. That's amazing. So how do you get those author visits? How do you, how do schools find out about you? So there's a few ways. Obviously word of mouth is obviously very helpful, but there's a certain amount of advertising that I'll do. There's a certain amount of websites. There's uh, one called authorbookings.com that you, it's relatively cheap and you could put up all your, your information up there. And that's where librarians and teachers go to find speakers. I do a lot of just direct 
mail of, of getting lists of librarians and teachers and just reaching out. The problem is for a lot of, I find this all the time, uh, usually it goes through the librarians, but the librarians will tell me that they have a hard time finding authors. They want them, but they have a hard time finding them because the authors aren't out there. They're not putting it on their website that they do what I do. So if anyone's interested in doing it, the best thing you do is reach out. I mean, I started with just literally my local school. And in the beginning, well, the other benefit of doing author visits is not only do you sell the books, but you get paid to come. So even if you sell nothing, which doesn't happen, but even if you did, you got paid for being there. So in the beginning, I would just reach out to all schools that were near me. And in the beginning, you offer it for free or for very little money. And they're usually excited about it. I mean, I know here in America, most schools, yeah, they do uh, an author visit almost every year. So, but sometimes they struggle to find someone. So if you're out there and emailing them or calling them and saying, this is what I do, you'd be surprised. A a lot of them will will take you up on it. And then usually if you can do a good job, then the word of mouth will carry it sort of from there. Wow, this is this is great. And I feel like you just gave me an idea there, which is at the moment I advertise myself speaking as uh, Joanna Penn for nonfiction and mainly speak at conferences and for authors. But you're right, as a fiction author, I have never even considered the speaking angle. Now, obviously, I don't do it for children, but you're, I mean, why don't I even have a speaking tab on my fiction site, my JF Penn site? I mean, that, as you say, a lot of the times people don't realize that you're available for that kind of thing unless you say you are. <laughs> so right. even just putting, I saw on your website, you've got a booking on your store, right? P- people can actually just go to your store and book uh, a session with you. Yeah, correct. Like, yeah, they, there's, you could do it mul- that multiple ways. I mean, and then it, it got even more interesting in the last couple of years because I kind of shied away from doing virtual things because I, I felt like kids spent too much time on a computer already. So they, they, it's better for them to meet me in person. But then it became necessary for the last couple of years for me to do my job from the house. And so now I can go in person and, and explain how I make books and show them how they can do it. I could do it on the computer. People can call me, people can email me, people can book it straight through the website. Yeah, if you let people know, then a lot of times they'll take you up on it and they'll say, come and talk to me or the people that I'm in charge of. That's that's brilliant. So when you say you sell the books at the events, so when people, so say the librarian says, can you come to our school? Do you then say, I'll come and bring, I'll bring like 50, 100 books or whatever. And do you get the sale in advance for the books or do you then expect the kids to be buying things when you're there? So I do it the, the opposite way of literally every other author that I know that does it. They do it the way you're describing. A lot of times they pre-sell the books and then they'll bring them and then have them that day. I've always felt for two reasons that I want to sell them after the event. Uh, the first reason is just out of respect for the parents and the teachers that and the students that I want them to meet me first. I don't want to sell them something because most times that nobody knows, the kids don't know who I am. I don't have big enough name recognition that they know the books. So I want them to meet me first and then sell to them. And the other reason is because usually if I sell after, I sell more because they've met me and because um, I've shown them how I make a book and told them where the idea came from. That actually makes them want it more. So usually when I 
uh, arrive, I, I do my whole, I'm usually there for the entire day and doing different groups because each of my presentations is different. It's, it's different talking to a kindergartner than it is talking to a sixth grader. So each one has different information, different books I talk about. I bring posters, which I, which is a great like promotional tool and also just something fun um, for the kids. So even if they don't buy books, I want to make sure they leave the event um, with something that they can remember me by and just something that they can enjoy. So I bring posters and then I bring the order forms with me on that day. So they go home after I've finished uh, all of my sessions. And then usually what they'll do is they'll collect them all and then they'll just send me all the orders and all the payments. And then I'll just ship the books out. But I, I've, I've done it both ways. I just found that when I pre-sold the books, I sold significantly less than when I would sell them after I had a chance to talk with the kids. Mm, that's interesting. And I guess, especially if it's virtual, then it's getting used to that anyway, because right. you're not showing them a physical book there in the room. And so I can see that that, that will work. So I also want to ask about your website. So your website looks fantastic. I, I Everyone should go over and have a look at your website. I mean, it's brilliant. But of course, you're an illustrator too. So there's lots of wonderful <laughs> um, images on it and your characters look great. But you also use, I clicked on a few things. It looks like you use Square for direct sales. Um, is that right? And how does your cart work and your online sales work for print books? Uh, yes, I did. Well, first on the website, yeah, I had to do that all myself. That was um, another job like that I had to learn because I wasn't a web designer um, by any means. And there's another skill. I'm lucky because I am the illustrator. So things go faster because I can just do it myself and they're way cheaper because I don't have to pay someone um, to do it. But it is an enormous amount of work. And then because I was doing kids books, it was important for the website to be extensive, right? It, it, it can't be a three or four page book uh, website. I think my website now has over 90 pages, believe it or not, like of things that they can read and games that they can play and videos and all that stuff. For, for the sales, yes, it is going through Square. I have never had a problem with Square. It is the easiest thing in the world to use because also I do a lot of book fairs and book shows and these type of things where I have to take payments there too. So I have your, you can real easy attaches to your phone. You can swipe credit cards. You can put payments in really, really easy. Never had a problem. Money shows up in like, I think a day, really, really easy to do. And I'm doing the shipping. So like they're handling all my payments and everything like that. But then it's my job to pack all this stuff up and, and then ship it out. Is it a, a plugin or so a lot of people use WooCommerce plugin for WordPress or Shopify? I've never actually known anyone who uses Square. So did you have to just build that into your website? It's actually on their website. It looks like it's on my website, but when you click on uh, to buy a book, you're actually technically leaving my website and going to a page on their website where all of uh, the books are, are there and, and, what, and whatnot. So when you actually input their, your credit card and everything, technically, you're not even on my website anymore. You're actually on theirs. Oh, that, that is good. And uh, do they deal with all the sales taxes or do you have to deal with that? Nope. They handle all of that stuff, you know, and you can, there's a million settings uh, that you can use. You can set up different um, sales taxes for different state. They handle all the things you can do a lot of cool stuff too. You can put in coupon codes, all that stuff. Cause I use that a lot for when I go to schools and stuff. Actually, I don't even use their service to the extent of what it can do because I just need it to handle. Cause the truth is probably, I don't know, only 10% of all of my sales are actually 
coming through the website. Like I said, 90% are going through me physically being there and then me actively selling it. So I, that's one area since I have so many jobs, the problem is I don't have an enormous amount of time to focus on building my online marketing. That's one area where I'm sorely lacking. And that's something that is planned for the summer when the schools are gone for the time being, then to try to elevate my online sales. Because I, the truth is I haven't really needed it because I'm so, I do well enough just selling directly to the kids, but as a business, like you said, leaving money on the table. I'm not, I, I, I would rather draw than, than do marketing I, a, a million times over. So I have to kind of convince myself to focus more on my online sales. Oh, I think everyone listening feels the same way. <laughs> I mean, who, no, no one loves marketing, <laughs> like no, no creative. It's like, oh, I really want to do my marketing today. It's as you say, it's one of the things we have to do. But I mean, I had COVID last year and uh, quite badly and I couldn't work. My brain wasn't working. I was sick and my income was fine because most mm. of my business is online and scalable and doesn't rely on physical me. <laughs> So I think even like if you love it like you do, for people listening as well, how much like it's about thinking how much of this business is reliant on physical me. And if I get really sick or if I die, how much money will come in for my family or stuff like that. And I thought that about that a lot during COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's funny is like, cause I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday and your plan is what I have to kind of start gravitating towards because we were just saying like my business is in t- almost entirely reliant on me because it, it's become more like a show, right? Or at least that's what it is for now is that I'm very reliant on physically being in the room and it works well to, to move a lot of books by talking about the books and pitching the books and selling the books. The problem is there isn't a lot of passive sales. There just isn't because I haven't spent the time to set up that infrastructure. So yes, that is something I definitely have to focus on. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you because I feel like a lot of people, you know, I was looking on your website and I mean, you, you it, everything looks incredibly slick and successful and brilliant, but we've identified hopefully a few ways that you can make more money for hopefully less effort in, in the future. And I think that's really great. I think that we can all learn things from each other. And like I said, I've learned from you too. And I mean, we're all f- trying to figure it, out, figure it out, aren't we? I mean, and it never stops. We never stop learning new things. Yeah, I mean, I honestly, I did not expect that talking to you, I was going to learn things and I did. And that's great because you're right. A lot of the ways you're doing things is helpful to me. There are areas, yes, that it, like you're saying that you used a very a good word. The word slick is yes, my website comes off as very slick. There's still holes in the business plan. <laughs> There's still many. And so for everyone out there listening, there are some things I do very, very well. And there are some advantages I have because I have a lot of different uh, skills, but there are some things that I'm sorely lacking and still learning and even growing today. So yes, this, is, this has been helpful for me as well. Oh, fantastic. So if people are interested in checking your books out, just give us an idea of what age group your books are for and also where people can find you and your books online. So I, luckily for me, this is another thing going back to the having a publisher. Since I'm independent, I can make all books. Usually when you have a publisher, they put you in a category and say, let's stick with this age range. So my books range all the way 
from kindergarten, my picture books are, some of them are for kindergarten all the way up till about the fourth or fifth grade. And then I actually have a middle grade novel that's going to be released in the middle of the summer. So that book will actually be for around the sixth, seventh and eighth grade and above. So I'm actually creatively, I'm very good at broadening my horizons and I'm, I'm hoping from a business sense, I have to get better at that. But yeah, technically there's something there for kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade and you can find it. It's a at my website is the letter D and then my middle name, Jude, J-U-D-E, Miller.com, djudemiller.com. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, Daniel. That was great. Fantastic. This has been a lot of fun. So I hope you found the interview with Daniel interesting and that it's helped you question what you might be leaving on the table in terms of sales. Even if you sell in person, why wouldn't you have a print-on-demand edition of your book for global sales? What holes do you have in your business model? And this is something I'm thinking about. I have tons of streams of income, but I'm still thinking about what are the holes in my business model. So next Monday, I'll be talking about the writing craft from big idea to book with Jesse Quack. And remember, if you'd like to win 14 print novels, check out the Easter giveaway open to all internationally thecreativepen.com forward slash Easter 22 links in the show notes and that does end in a couple of weeks so this is <laughs> that is a time sensitive thing thecreativepen.com forward slash Easter 22 happy writing and I'll see you next time thanks for listening today I hope you found it helpful you might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.